Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 5, 9. We have one more beatitude to go after this week. We're going to preach verses 10 through 12 together. This morning, Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I love the Beatitudes because they're not suggestions for, for Jesus, from Jesus. They're not options for us to, to pick and choose. They are beautiful, declared blessings with promises attached to them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. A Baptist theologian from the 19th century, one of the founders of Southern Seminary, wrote this. There is no more godlike work to be done in this world than peacemaking. Now, in a world that is full of fighting and, and warring, politics and relational conflict, I, I have to agree with that statement, but I think I would probably amend it, especially today. I would say that there is no more needed godlike work to be done in the world today than peacemaking. This, this beatitude of peace from Jesus was so countercultural when he first said it, and it is so countercultural today. You see, around the time that Jesus declared, blessed are the peacemakers, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, many first century Jews had begun to think that revolutionary violence was the only proper response to the violence and oppression that they experienced at the hands of the Romans. They were hoping for a revolution from Roman rule and oppression, and they believed the best way to accomplish that would be through violence. There was a group later that would come along, they were called the Zealots. Many Israelites in Jesus' day, they even had hopes for the Messiah that were rooted in revolution and violence. They longed for the Messiah to come because they believed that his coming would bring a a very real political revolution. They believed that Israel's Messiah would come as a warrior king to destroy Israel's enemies, the Romans especially, and that the Messiah would retake David's throne and reign forever, and that peace would be created through violence. But they couldn't have been more wrong in their expectations. Here sits the actual Messiah. Here sits Messiah, Jesus, and on this mountain, and he declares, blessed are those who make peace. The ones who make peace possess God's blessing and favor. And and he even says, for they shall be called sons or children of God. So true children of God make peace with others. You see, Jesus was dashing these false messianic hopes against the rocks. However, he was actually fulfilling what these zealots should have seen in the Old Testament. He's fulfilling that great Advent passage from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, 
and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of... I, I didn't just forget how to read. I was seeing if you guys would say it. What is it again? Prince of... Yeah, you guys did the plays in, uh, whenever you were little. Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah goes on to say, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus promises the kingdom not to those who try to force God's hand in time, but to those who patiently and humbly wait for it, and in the meantime, make peace, not war. But the same is true for us in 2020. Jesus' beatitude of peace comes as a beautiful resistance to our current cultural climate. We, We live in the age of outrage and cancel culture. The news media, it seems to be on a 24-hour outrage cycle. Social media is a breeding ground for outrage and conflict. And we are living in one of the most culturally and politically polarizing eras that most of us have ever experienced. You have to choose a side, right? You know how it works. You have to choose a side. You have to be on this side or you have to be on this side. And whatever side you on, you're on immediately dictates who your enemy is. And you have to stay outraged at the other side. Sadly, this outrage and the relational cancel culture seeps into the church. And it doesn't just seep into the church and, and you know, in the ways that we participate in, on social media or talk about politics, it seeps into the church in that we start to become outraged in our relationships with one another. We start to cancel one another whenever we come into conflict. We fight like the world fights. We cancel like the world cancels. We are outraged the way that the world is outraged. And it was never meant to be this way in the church. In fact, that's one reason why we chose to walk through the Beatitudes in the first place this summer. It's because the Beatitudes help reorient our hearts to the way of the kingdom. And the way of the kingdom, which should be the way of the church, is a glorious alternative culture to the world in which we live. And we need to be reminded that we are citizens of God's kingdom first. And we need to be reminded of what those citizens do and what we should be pursuing in the midst of outrage culture jesus is calling each and every one of us to be peacemakers so let's consider this beatitude by answering three questions three questions first question number one who are the peacemakers if the peacemakers are blessed by jesus who are they who are the peacemakers question two why should we be peacemakers what's our motivation Why should we be peacemakers? And then question three, how can we do it? How can we actually become peacemakers? All right, so question one, who are the peacemakers? Now, when you hear the word peace, what other words come to mind just for you? Like whenever you hear the word peace, what what do you think of? Stillness, quiet, you think of a, a calm and peaceful setting or a calm and peaceful evening or you know Eric and I will be sitting sometimes on the couch after the kids go to bed and we're like oh it's so peaceful 
finally, just peace, peace and quiet, you know. What, what do you think of whenever you hear the word peace? You think of peaceful people, peaceful places. You think of maybe peace between nations. Maybe you think of times of peace that come after war. Well, peace can mean many different things to different people. But what does the Bible say about peace? The biblical concept of peace basically includes two parts. It includes the absence of something and the presence of something. So biblical peace is the absence of conflict on one hand, the absence of conflict. But on the other hand, biblical peace is the presence of wholeness, wholeness, the, the Hebrew word shalom, peace. It's, it's wholeness. So it's the absence of conflict. It's the presence of wholeness. To be whole is to be at peace. The core idea of peace is to restore what is incomplete, divided, or broken. To truly be at peace with yourself or with others is to be whole. It is to be complete. There are a few examples in the Old Testament that are actually rather odd. You, you wouldn't actually think the word peace would be in these situations. But one is found in the book of Job, in Job chapter 5. And one of his friends is, is talking to Job, and he says to Job, just something that seems so, so random, but he says to Job uh, that Job would know that his tent, okay, his dwelling place, his tent, that his tent is at peace when he sees that none of, his, none of the sheep of his fold are missing. Okay? So when none of the sheep of the fold are missing, Job's tent is at peace. The idea that's communicated there is the wholeness, the completeness of, of his fold, of his tent, of his dwelling place. Another example is found when Solomon completes the building of the temple. He is said to have brought peace to the temple whenever he finally completes it, what completes what was incomplete. He brings wholeness to the temple, and therefore he brings peace. In Proverbs 16, the one who reconciles a broken relationship is said to bring peace. He's bringing order. He's bringing wholeness to a relationship that was otherwise incomplete or broken. You see, peace works under the assumption that life is full of complex relationships and situations. And whenever parts of your life are out of alignment, it's not always relational. When any part of your life is out of alignment, it's missing, it's broken, you don't have peace. Your peace breaks down. And the reason that peace is absent when conflict is present is because when conflict is present, brokenness is present. When you have conflict with another person, the relationship with them is not whole. It is not complete. A brick is missing from the wall. What should be whole and complete has missing or disjointed parts, and so peacemaking is required. Peace in relationships, then, is harmony among people. It is more than just making amends and making, making things okay. You know, you say you're sorry, they say, okay, I forgive you, and then you go on hating each other after the, after the fact. Peace actually involves harmony. It's, it's not that people just stop fighting with one another. It's not enough to just say, I'm at odds with this person, well, I'm going to give up on it now, I'm not at odds with them anymore. Or I'm, I'm fighting with this person, well, I'm going to stop fighting with them. That's not peace. That's just, now conflict isn't present. Now you're not actively fighting, but peace is the active work of loving and doing good for one another. 
Peacemaking is the work of restoring or making whole what is broken. So who are the peacemakers? We're going to answer it negatively and positively. The peacemakers, negatively. They are not those who pursue what I'll call cheap peace. They are not those who pursue cheap peace. And we all know what cheap peace looks like. Cheap peace can be characterized in two ways. It's making peace no matter the cost, and it's avoiding confrontation no matter the cost. All right, so first, making peace at all costs. That is cheap peace. Peacemakers do not compromise truth or justice for the sake of appeasement and then call it peace. That's not peace. It is not peacemaking when someone sweeps sin under the rug and then they just act like everything is okay with another person. That's cheap peace. It requires and accomplishes nothing. Now this version of cheap peace often compromises biblical truth just to get along with another person. It's cheap. It's making peace at all costs. Second, Another, another version of cheap peace is avoiding conflict at all costs. So peacemakers, they, they don't feed animosity by ignoring or avoiding someone they're in conflict with. Cheap peace in this sense is often justified through the mantra, time heals all wounds. Time heals all wounds. It happens when you're either in a conflict or made aware of a conflict, but instead of working for wholeness, working for healing and restoration, you just keep your distance. Six feet, please. You just, you just, you just keep your distance. You ignore the person, and you just hope that in time, everybody forgets and moves on. That's not peace. That's cheap peace. It brings further damage because... Bitterness starts to grow, and it starts to grow in the heart until it takes over the heart, and the heart becomes so hard that peace may not be possible between you and the other person. Peacemaking is costly, often sacrificial, always difficult. So we like cheap peace. It's so much easier just to close your eyes and hope that the conflict is gone when you open them again. So peacemakers, they do not pursue cheap peace. But who are they then? What, what do they pursue? Peacemakers, they, they, they're characterized in two ways. So first, they have this inner disposition of peace. Okay, it starts in the heart. Peacemaking starts in the heart. They have an inner disposition of peace. They actually desire wholeness. They, I mean, they, they want their relationships to be healed where they are hurting. They want to see restoration where they see things that are broken. They want to see wrongs undone. They want to see forgiveness. They want to see repentance and confession of sin. They, they want to see estranged parties reconciled. They want harmony, and they want wholeness. And they don't only want it between themselves and another person. They want to see it in the community in which they live. They lament conflict and brokenness. So they have this inner disposition of peace. But peacemakers also outwardly work for peace in their actions. They're not just a peaceable person. They're not just someone who's easy to get along with. And they're not just someone who wishes everyone could get along. They actually do the hard work of trying to make peace in their actions. They mend broken relationships. They actually do the hard work of restoring 
and they seek to build bridges rather than tearing them or burning them down. So the peacemakers are those with an inner disposition of peace and those who outwardly work for peace in their actions. And what they're working for is wholeness, completeness, restoration, and reconciliation. Now, the second question then, if if we know who the peacemakers are, why should we want to be peacemakers? Why should we be peacemakers? We have two of the greatest motivations you could ever hope or dream for. We should be peacemakers for two reasons. First, we should be peacemakers because God has made peace with us. If, if you don't get anything else out of that should be enough, honestly. That should be enough. We could close it out right now. Josh can get his, uh, his you know, fix his string over here and, and, you know, we can start singing right now. We should be peacemakers because God has made peace with us. Think about yourself for just a second and how broken and incomplete you are. And think about how estranged you are from God. And it's not because he's gone anywhere. And it's not because he is disappointed or failed or left or been unfaithful. It's because you have time and time and time and time again. And this God who is holy and pure and just pursues peace with you. He has every right to judge you and condemn you. And instead of burning the bridge or or allowing the bridge that you burn to stay burned, he builds one. He comes to you. He pursues reconciliation. Now, why, why does he do that? Why, why, why does he do that? Because God is a God of peace. This is really important to see. Peace is a part of his character, which means it is unchanging. It is infinite, and it is eternal. He is a God of peace. Paul and the author of Hebrews, they both describe God in benedictions as a God of peace. Luke tells us that the place where God dwells is a world of peace. And we also know that God is not just at peace within himself, nor does he merely have a peaceable disposition or character. We know that our God is a peacemaker by nature. His very character, he is a peacemaker. So even though humanity is at war with God in rebellion against him, this all-powerful God of justice pursues peace with us. And despite the repeated conflict that we bring, that we enter into with God, even as his children, he never stops pursuing peace. He never stops making peace with us. It's who he is. That's why he does it. Now, how does he do it? How? How? How can God, the eternal God, the holy God, the just God, make peace with a part of his creation that has rebelled against him and has entered into conflict with him? How, how, how can he do it? How does he do it? Well, he does it through the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. Jesus himself is our peace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus reconciles us to God through his work on the cross. Colossians 1. For in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 2 Corinthians 5. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. We could go on and on. The whole history of redemption which climaxes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's plan for establishing lasting peace between sinful humanity and himself. And this motivates peacemaking between sinners like us. So because God has made peace with us, we have absolutely no defense for stirring up conflict with one another. Because God has made peace with us, we have no defense to stir up conflict with one another, and we have every reason to make peace wherever conflict exists. So we should be peacemakers because God has made peace with us, but we have one more glorious reason, and it's, it's embedded in this blessing in, in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. We should be peacemakers because peacemaking is a mark of the good life. It is a mark of the best life that we could ever hope to live on this earth. Peacemaking is a mark of the good life, though, because through peacemaking, we reflect the peace of God, and we reflect the work of Jesus. As those who enter the kingdom of God by the blood of Jesus, we do so only because God brought wholeness to our brokenness through the work of Jesus. We are restored and we are reconciled to God by his peacemaking work. So we live the good life, a life of blessing and happiness and fulfillment, when we extend the peace that we have received from Jesus to others. As we make peace with others, we look like God. We resemble him. We put the cross of Christ on full display. And there is no higher calling or privilege than to reflect the character and actions of God himself. The way of Jesus is the way of peace. Now, here's how I think about it in terms of trace crossing. There are a lot of churches, including ours, our staff. We talk about this from time to time. We, you think about creative ways to, to kind of stand out in the community. And some, some churches have bad motivations. Some have better motivations. You know, for the purpose of reaching the community, you want people to know you're here, right? Like, you want people to know you exist. So you think about branding, Um, You think about social media marketing. You think about events. Some churches, more than others, think about hype. You know, getting people hyped up about about church. You want to stand out. And I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with any of that. Like I said, we think about those things as a staff. But what good is it for us to stand out on paper or on a screen, but then just be another community of people full of bitterness and gossiping and infighting and lies and deceit. People get enough of that in the world, right? They already have that. And, and we want to stand out, so we stand out on paper, but then they come here, oh, well, this is just the same. Just another, just a Christian version of it, I guess. We'd be no different from the world. But stay with me for a second. What if, what would happen if the church at Trace Crossing was full of peacemakers? What if every single one of us took this beatitude to heart and we actually believed that the blessed life, the life that God favors is a life that makes peace with others? 
and we all embodied that. Th- that doesn't prevent us from conflict, okay? It doesn't protect us from coming into conflict with each other or others in the world. But if we have this natural disposition to make peace, and we are motivated by a God of peace who reconciles us through the peacemaking work of Jesus on the cross, would we not then stand out in a world that is full of outrage, in a world that is full of conflict, and in a world that is full of making sure you know who your enemy is so that you can be outraged at them? Would we not stand out? Oh, we would stand out in a way that would reflect the peacemaking glory of Jesus, and it would shine. We would experience and promote the wholeness, the healing, the restoration that the gospel creates and that sinners like us are hungry for. Peacemaking is a mark of the good life because through peacemaking, our hearts are made whole. These precious words from Jesus in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Fear and worry, then, are swallowed up by the peace of Jesus that he imparts to our hearts. So to not only have peace with God, but to make peace with others is to live as God intended, to flourish and to become whole. I want us to become a community that is whole and restored because we are pursuing peace with one another out of the motivation of our peace from God. All right, third and final question. How can we do this? How can we become peacemakers? What's it require? Well, in order to become peacemakers, we need to understand the path to peacemaking, and then we got to understand the power of peacemaking. The path and the power, two Ps, easy to remember. All right, the path. As a child of God, as I said at the beginning, you don't have an option here. Jesus, your calling is, is set for you. You are called and empowered to be a peacemaker. I, I'm going to suggest a path that, that basically goes in three different directions, okay? So a path to peacemaking, practical path to peacemaking, goes in three different directions. In order to practically start making peace with others... You first have to begin on this path within yourself. There's the inner direction, the inner direction. You have to make sure that there is peace within. And here's what it looks like. First, when you're in conflict with another person or you see conflict between other people, I'm not going to specify the scenario. It applies in both cases. You have to begin within yourself, and you have to check your desires, As I said, to be a peacemaker is to first have a disposition of peace, to desire it in your heart. Before you act to make peace, you need to check your heart to see if you actually want peace. Is that what you want? I can't tell you how many times people have confronted others, not because they want to make peace, but because they want to get something off their chest. They just want to vent. They want to tell you how it is. And they don't have any actual desires in their hearts for peace. There is a big difference between speaking your peace and making peace. Okay? And you would be surprised how powerful and redemptive a meeting can be when two estranged parties both actually and truly desire real peace. If you actually want it. You actually desire it. So 
Before you go to make peace with someone you're in conflict with, check your heart. Is it peace you actually want? Another thing you need to do within yourself, you need to forget yourself. You heard it here first. You need to forget yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the peacemaker is one who is not always looking at everything in terms of the effect it has upon himself. That's where you have to ask yourself, do I want restoration? Do I want wholeness? Do I want healing? Or do I just want to get something off my chest? And I hear this all the time when people talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about the other person. Forgiveness is about you. You ever heard that before? Forgiveness, forgiveness is about me. Um, they say that forgiveness is more about you than the person you're forgiving. They say that you forgive someone not so the relationship can be restored, but so that you don't have to carry around a burden. That's bogus. That's bogus. The whole point of peacemaking, the whole point of forgiveness even, is reconciliation. Now, it's not always possible. It doesn't always happen, unfortunately. But that's the goal. The goal is always, always to be restored to another person. Peacemakers actually want real peace that's marked by restoration, reconciliation, and wholeness. Peacemakers don't just want the conflict to end. They want to be restored in such a way that the previously alienated parties are now actively working for one another's good. That's what they want to see. And so if you're only thinking about how you can gain from pursuing peace, whether it's releasing a burden, getting something off your chest, just following you know, the, the path for, for uh, biblical conflict resolution, and you feel like you've done your part, whatever it is, if you're only concerned about yourself, you're not going to actually pursue or land in a place of peace. So before you take the next step on the path of peace, you first need to check your heart by evaluating your desires and shifting your focus away from yourself to the other person or persons that are in conflict. Finally, this, this last thing with this inner direction. So again, you do all of this stuff before you even begin to reach out to a person you're in conflict with. You have to deal with your own heart first. And this is, this is the hardest part. Sometimes you need to just let go. Okay? You need to let go what can be let go. After evaluating the situation, you may actually need to decide that this perceived conflict, it actually only exists in your heart. There may not actually be a conflict. So if that's the case, you need to let it go. There's, there's no need to go to the other person. Sometimes making peace means refusing to create a conflict that doesn't really exist. All right, so the first direction, inner. But there's another direction. There's a vertical direction, okay? As you're making peace, this path is a vertical direction. You, you need to deal with God before you go make peace with another person. And this, this works in two ways. First, you need to remember how God has made peace with you. Just remind yourself of the gospel. He has made peace with you by the blood of his son on the cross. And you are at peace with God. And, and, and just remind yourself of how he continues to make peace with you every single day. And, and then the second thing you need to do is pray. Before you go have a conversation with someone to make peace with them, you need to pray to God and ask him to help you, to check your own desires to reveal is there anything malicious in my heart as I'm heading into this conversation with someone so pray but third and this is this is where the meat comes in 
the horizontal direction. So there's inner, vertical, horizontal when it comes to making peace with others. And this approach is just something I'm going to recommend. And it, it more has to do with your disposition toward another person. It may look completely different whether you're dealing with, you're trying to make peace between two other parties or you're trying to make peace with someone else. It's going to look different, the actual mechanics. This is less about the mechanics and more about the motive. Here's what I would suggest, though, as, you, as you're prepared to go to someone to make peace with them. First, humbly approach them by clearly communicating your desired outcome from the conversation. Do you understand how powerful it is whenever you reach out to someone and you say, hey, I... I know I said something or you said something that, that's kind of hurt our relationship and we're a little bit estranged. I don't want that to be the case. I want us to be restored. I want us to be reconciled. And you just, you just state it. This is what I want. Not just a bland, hey, you free for coffee next week? You don't tell them anything, you show up and you're like, hey, look, I got a problem with you. You know, and they think they're just like sitting down for coffee with you. They don't know. No, be clear. Clearly communicate the desired outcome. Second, as you start a conversation with someone, if you have the opportunity to speak first, do not begin by pointing out how the other person has messed up the relationship. Don't start there. A great way to begin a peacemaking conflict resolution conversation is to confess your own sins. Begin by confessing your own failures and own up to it. This is how I have failed in this relationship. Even if the other person has done something totally wrong against you. Maybe you waited too long to have this conversation. Just lament that fact with them. Third, just listen. Listen. Give the other person an opportunity to speak, to talk, and, and genuinely listen to them. Fourth, as you're listening to them, don't make assumptions. Ask questions. Don't make assumptions. They say something, and you think, well, the only reason they're saying that is because they're thinking this. No, don't, you don't know that. Ask them. Ask them. Don't assume the worst. Assume the best in them, and ask questions when you don't understand. Don't assume motive. And then three more things. Forgive, reconcile, love. Peacemaking only happens not just when the conflict is over, but when genuine love and goodwill is restored to the relationship where you were genuinely desiring the good of the other person and working for the good of the other person so peacemaking doesn't stop until that happens well that, that this is that's one path toward peacemaking but that is impossible to to land on apart from the power of peacemaking and the power of peacemaking comes at the end of this beatitude blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of god and when Jesus says this, he is not telling us how we become children of God. Jesus is simply saying that children of God are peacemakers. They make peace. It's what they do. And so the gospel compels us to make peace, and the gospel frees us to make peace. And that's because we fail to make peace or even desire peace because of pride and fear. We're afraid of confrontation. We're afraid of how the other person in a conflict might respond to us. 
Our fear leads us to allow conflict to fester like a wound, and we are simply afraid of having to admit that we are wrong. Pride and fear dominates us so that we do not ever pursue peace with another person. We resist peacemaking because in our pride, we are gratified by another fight or conflict. We reason that, you know, we're not going to go to them. They can come to me. They're the ones who started it. I'm not going to them until they come to me. The gospel sets us free from this fear and pride. We do not have to live for the acceptance or approval of others because the God who knows how messed up we are even more than we do has freely accepted us and freely approved of us and has made peace with us. We have been set free from the fear of rejection. So why would we be afraid of making peace? Why would we be afraid of what peace might bring? We have been set free from the shackles of pride. The gospel is the news that the eternal Son of God condescended in humility to take on human flesh and die for our peace with God. This reality is power to desire and work for peace with others. So if you're afraid of failing, so what if you fail to make peace? So what if others view you as soft or weak for giving in to peace? So, so what if our attempts at peacemaking cause some to associate us with people we don't want to be associated with? We have peace with God. We are sons and daughters and therefore heirs of God. The power to make peace is in the gospel. That's where our peacemaking journey has to begin if we are to embrace and live out this beatitude. Some questions as we close some diagnostic questions for you to just think about this week. Do people see you as a peacemaker? Is that how you're known? Are you more likely to spread gossip or peace? When you engage in conflict, are you building bridges or are you burning them? How do you interact with people who are different from you or disagree with you? Listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to be a peacemaker. That means that the disposition of your heart and the works of your hands are characterized by peace, wholeness, restoration, and reconciliation because God has worked to make peace between himself and you. And the beauty here is in the simplicity of this beatitude. You don't really have a choice. Your calling is chosen for you. Our job as Christ followers is to be peacemakers. So let's reflect the character of God and the cross of Christ by making peace wherever we are. And as we do, we will give others and ourselves glimpses of that day that we long for so much when the peace of God will fill the earth.